From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think what President Biden is running up against is, I, th- I think it's a visceral thing as well, and I think it's it's well beyond the Republican Party now. It's it's in the Democratic Party among among voters, which is the border is out of control. We're a nation of laws, and it's chaos. That's Dexter Filkins, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Filkins has reported from conflict and war zones all over the world. He recently spent time reporting from the southern border, where a record number of migrants are crossing over to seek asylum. The unfolding crisis has overwhelmed federal, state, and city officials, posing a significant challenge for the Biden administration. Filkins joins me to discuss his experience reporting from the border, what's driving the recent surge in migrations, and what our government can do to handle the influx. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet or a post from ex-user at JimWent2, who asks, do judges read slash watch the news? I'm sure they do. So how do they manage trials when the trial and the defendant, read Trump, are in the news every day, before and during the trial? Lock themselves away? Cancel their New York Times subscription? Banish the TV? So I want to answer your question by beginning with a premise that seems obvious but is often forgotten. The judges are human beings. They may be accomplished lawyers with excellent credentials, and have a lifetime of achievement. And in the legal profession, to become a judge is to reach the pinnacle of that profession. But they remain always, even as judges, even while wearing the robe, even while sitting on the bench, human beings. And so that renders them curious. They're curious about how their proceedings are being perceived. They're sensitive and curious with respect to how they may be being perceived too. And again, I'm speaking generally. All judges are different, just like all people are different. But some judges are very focused on the coverage of the things that they're overseeing and presiding over. In fact, I once had a judge call me after the U.S. Attorney's Office issued a press release about the sentencing of a defendant who we had tried and convicted. And the judge called and seemed to be unhappy that the judge's name was not in the press release as the sentencing judge. That's unusual, but that tells you how some judges do pay attention to the news, do pay attention to what's being covered, and are sensitive to it. By the way, I should emphasize There's nothing at all wrong with judges following the coverage of matters and proceedings before them. We expect and trust that judges can put aside prejudicial facts 
or irrelevant facts when they render their judgments. They do that all the time in court proceedings as well. There's a distinction between judges and our expectation of judges and jurors who are admonished on a daily basis pretty much when they're sitting in judgment, not to watch the news, not to follow the papers, not to do any of their own research or Googling or internet queries about the matter that they're supposed to decide. Now, if part of the spirit of your question is, what do judges do if they're overwhelmed and there's so much news about their cases? I don't expect they banish the TV or cancel their New York Times subscription, but they do what probably you and I do from time to time, which is, you know, lower the supply of that news. By the way, from time to time, particularly with respect to some of the Trump matters, a judge's obligation and responsibility may extend to knowing what's being said in the press, what the reporting is. For example, with respect to the policing of a gag order against Donald Trump, it's part of the judge's responsibility to know about and perceive what's being said to police that gag order. But just to repeat, our system relies on the principle that judges are expected to decide cases and matters on the law and the facts, not an extraneous material, not an irrelevant material, not on sensational or salacious material. And if they ever feel overwhelmed and inundated by the news, they can always put down their phone. This question comes in a tweet or a post from Twitter slash X user at Grump Clump Frump. Great username. <laughs> Hashtag AskPreet. Should anything be inferred from Judge Cannon's glacial pace or are we overreacting? Can you please give a quick overview of the consequences and recourse? Thank you. Well, that's a great question. And as I've been saying over and over and over again, that as we discuss the legal principles and the legal decisions and the strategizing and the arguments being made by the government and by Trump in these four criminal cases, one of the most important features to keep your finger on and your mind focused on is the clock. As I've said many times, the election is an inflection point. And if Trump wins re-election, these trials may all go away. So accountability requires some speediness in getting to these trials. Now, you're, of course, talking about Judge Cannon, who's the federal district court judge in Florida, who's overseeing the government's case against Donald Trump relating to classified documents and the mishandling of documents at Mar-a-Lago and elsewhere. So I will say that as a general matter, it doesn't look like Judge Cannon is aiming to break the land speed record for going to trial. I think you're asking the question at this moment because of a particular ruling she made in the last number of days. Jack Smith's office recently asked the judge to compel the Trump team to give over some information. As you may remember in the documents case, one potential defense that Trump is likely to assert is an advice of counsel defense. In other words, my lawyers told me that I had to behave in this particular way. They told me that I could retain these documents. They told me that I could declassify these documents. And I relied on their advice. And if I relied on their advice, then I didn't have the mental state or the proper intent to commit a crime. And that can be a dispositive defense. When someone makes an advice of counsel defense as a general matter, the government is entitled to get notice of that fact so they can prepare their own prosecution case. And they're entitled to get some information about the nature of that defense what the advice of counsel was, etc. So in the ordinary course, and they have a legitimate basis for doing so, they've asked for that information, and Judge Cannon did not deny them their request, but said it's premature. Here's what Judge Cannon said in the last few days, quote, assuming the facts and circumstances in this case warrant an order compelling disclosure of an advice of counsel trial defense, the court determines that such a request is not amenable to proper consideration at this juncture. Prior to at least partial resolution of pretrial motions, transmission to defendants of the special counsel's exhibit and witness lists, and other disclosures as may become necessary, end quote. Now that decision, on its own and in a vacuum, is not necessarily a bad one, is not necessarily an improper one, 
and is not necessarily a dilatory one, meaning intended to cause delay. The problem is that in matter after matter after matter, it doesn't seem like Judge Cannon is in any hurry. Right now, by the way, of the four criminal trials pending against Donald Trump, one case, the Georgia case, does not have a trial date set. But among the other three cases, the trial date set in the Judge Cannon case is the latest so far. It's set for May 20th, which I think most experts believe is not going to be possible at the current pace. By the way, you're not the first to observe that Judge Cannon doesn't seem to be in any hurry. There was a political article written by Josh Gerstein in November, almost two months ago. The article was entitled, How One Judge is Slowing Down One of Trump's Biggest Criminal Cases. And the first sentence of the analysis is, quote, Judge Eileen Cannon seems to be in no hurry, end quote. And this is before the recent decision about advice of counsel, notice, and information. And as the article recounts, back in November, the pretrial process was set at a leisurely pace. Other delays were embraced by Judge Cannon. There's also a complexity in this case that's going to take some time to unravel and to resolve, and that is the use of classified information at trial. What can be used, what can't be used, what has to be redacted, what doesn't have to be redacted, under a somewhat complicated law known as SEPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act. Now again, any one of these particular decisions to go a little bit more slowly or take a little bit more time is not a reason to think that she's going along with the delay tactics of the Trump team, but in combination, you're right to worry about it. So going back to the second part of your question, can you give a quick overview of the consequences and the recourse? Well, the consequences are pretty profound if this trial doesn't take place and is not concluded before the election. With respect to recourse, there's not that much the government can do other than push and push and nudge and nudge and maybe pressure the judge into moving with a little bit more speed. But decisions about when motion should be decided and when discovery should be provided are pretty much in the discretion of the district court judge and not a matter of appeal. So they can push and they can pressure, but they don't have any definitive recourse if the judge wants to go slow. I'll be right back with my conversation with Dexter Filkins. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless. 
even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. In December, an estimated 300,000 people crossed the southern border into the U.S., a record high. In the meantime, Congress, which has not passed comprehensive immigration reform in almost four decades, continues to struggle to develop more effective policy. New Yorker journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner Dexter Filkins recently reported on the situation and crisis at the border. Dexter Filkins, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So we have a lot to talk about on this main issue that I want to address with you, immigration in all of its forms. In particular, we'll talk about the border. But I guess my first question, based on some of the chit-chat we had before we started actually recording, how hard a story is this to cover and to understand and to explain? Uh, remarkably hard. I, remarkably and, and why difficult. is that? Because you wouldn't. it's not intuitive that it would be that difficult. Explain what the challenges are. In both no, and like understanding I, and explaining, yeah, yeah, and like I, I, I've worked in war zones, <laughs> but this, this was remarkably difficult. And I, I imagined when I set out, and I, I set out to essentially answer one question, which is, what's happening at the border, and how many people are coming in. And I thought, you know, I'll just go to the DHS website and look that number up. Um, and and it's that I couldn't have been farther from the truth. The statistics are. They're held in kind of categories that were designed for a reality that existed long ago, and but doesn't exist anymore. And so they don't really reflect the reality. Is the problem that someone knows and the information in accurate form is not being shared with journalists, or is nobody keeping proper yes. track? <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's yeah. the first. No, one. it's the, it's the former. They that that, and that's the other thing, which is this is not something that that certainly the current administration has any, any enthusiasm to talk about. They, they, I think they ignored it for a long time and kind of, you know, imagined it wasn't a big problem, but now they realize that it is a big problem. And so when people like me come knocking on the door and say, like, I want to know, I want to know what's really happening, you're not exactly uh, welcomed with open arms. Is that a new problem or is that culture of obscuring information, does that date back? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I always run into that as a journalist. Um, but the, I, I think it has with immigration, it's changed. And I think because immigration and the border, they, that topic has changed as an issue. And I think so, so for instance, the, the Trump people were happy to talk about the border because they felt like, you know, we're doing something about it. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're taking drastic measures because it's a big problem and we're, we're happy to talk about it. Um, and, I think what happened, I think what happened when President Biden came in was President Trump had taken a lot of really drastic measures on the border that had never been done before. You know, things like uh, your listeners will have heard some of these some of these terms like remain in Mexico, where yeah. you have to can't come across and you have to stay in Mexico until you until we decide to let you in, and the Muslim ban and and 
things like that. And it, the Biden administration came into office in 2021 determined not to be Trump and determined to basically tear down a lot of the things that he had done. And I think- But are you saying all things or are you speaking specifically about immigration? And was their motivation merely to be anti-Trump or, as they've said, to be humane for a change? But I think both. I think both. I, th- I think what what when they took down a lot of Trump's programs, people in the White House told me this. Like we didn't think through what would happen if we did that. And when, for instance, President Biden during the campaign was saying, "That's who we are. We're a nation that says if you want to flee and you're fleeing oppression, you should come." That was heard throughout Latin America, and and it was on Univision, and. People came and the numbers surged incredibly. And then when you basically took away Trump's programs, you know, for, for however good the motivations were, um, I think they weren't ready for the, for the deluge that came. Do you have a view on whether or not you can attribute that deluge to Biden's exhortation and welcome or to other factors in Central and South America or elsewhere? I, I think it's both. It, it, it's, I think what we're facing on the border is collapsing states uh, in Central America and South America, Venezuela, uh, Central America. Venezuela has produced, I think, 7 million refugees. I think, you know, 3 or 4 million of them have gone to Colombia. So, so a, lot, a lot of them have come to the United States. But these are, these are really, really troubled states. You have drug cartels and gangs, which are in some places as powerful as the state. And, and so people are, and you know, the people who are coming to the border your heart just bleeds for them. You can see it. They're they're here. They in some cases walk thousands of miles. They spend all the money that they have. They bring their children with them. They're here for a better life. They want the American dream. And you know, America was founded on that. We're we're all we're all we're all descended from immigrants. And and that's what's so that's what's so heartbreaking about it is there's a gigantic and and when you talk to an immigration policy person, they talk about push and pull. And so there's this enormous push coming from principally Latin America and Central America towards the border. So the question I was going to start with, and this is a prelude to that, was going to be to ask you what the scope of the issue is in terms of numbers of people coming over what period of time and how that compares to prior periods of time, including the Trump administration and the Obama administration. So what are, what are the accurate numbers? You see a lot of numbers being thrown around. Often they're different depending on the perspective of the person offering up the numbers. In your most unbiased formulation, what, what is the scope of incoming at the border in, in recent weeks and months? Well, the, the, uh, you know, the numbers are just, are just staggering. They, they really are. Um, I mean, they're kind of abstract, but they're, but they're staggering. They're huge. They're, for instance, uh, month of December, last month, 225,000 people came across the border that we know of. Um, so that's- Put that in perspective. How does that compare to other months and prior- Administration. Well, it's that's that's a lot. I mean, it's it's gone. It's right now. It's it's the levels of of say that's seven thousand people a day coming across every day. I mean, there's some days when it's hit twenty thousand, but seven thousand a day as a kind of daily average is basically higher than it's ever been. And that's you know some of that is the push that that I just mentioned, but also there's a perception that they're going to get in, and so it's those two things combined. Let's make sure we're defining what we're talking about. When you talk about the 225,000, am I correct that you're talking about 225,000 people who are presenting themselves at the border for ultimate asylum adjudication rather than 
225,000 people sort of sneaking across and being found illegally on the other side? Or is it a combination? It's a combination of both. Okay. And, and so what's, that's, a, that's a total number. The, yeah, that, that's a, as good a number as, as I have right now. It's 225,000. And that's, that's, that's defined. They, they, they use, you know, it, they're sort of bureaucratic terms, but they call that encounters. So it's, it's when an encounter is when a Border Patrol agent basically arrests someone coming across without permission. You know, that's like anybody that walks across the, wades across the Rio Grande and then right. comes but up on do you have an understanding or a sense of what percentage of those are, are people in that particular category who are presenting themselves for asylum? Historically, and I mean, I just mean in recent history, like say in this since since Biden has taken office, most of them are people who are seeking asylum. And and what's remarkable, and when you, you can see this when you go down to the border, is I think I think most people I certainly did. I, I imagine that what, you know most of the people, the overwhelming majority, were sneaking across and they're and they're and they're running into the streets, and then border patrol guys like run after them. That isn't that isn't. Most of what you see is like the opposite. It's, it's, you see people wading across the Rio Grande. They come on shore and they sit down and they, and they, and they wait to be arrested. They want to be arrested. They've basically been briefed, most of them, before they've come over saying, you will be arrested. This is, this is the way it works. And then you're essentially doing that in the, in the hope that you're going to be then released, you know. After a couple of hours, you'll be released into the United States. That that's the sort of hope of yeah. a typical person coming across. It seems important to distinguish between those two categories, and we'll get into this. People can have disagreements or views about the generosity of our asylum program, or the efficiency of it, or the timeliness of it, the speediness of it, and all of that. But people who come to the border and present themselves, as you described, and present themselves as asylum seekers are not breaking the law, correct? Well, they are breaking the law and they're not. I mean, it's, it, and this is like- Well, it's, it's like angels dancing on the head of a pin. <laughs> this, this, this is the heart of the matter. It's, it's, it is, it's not legal to walk into the United States, but the law of asylum, which has been on the books and is on the books of most Western countries since the end of World War II, is basically like, if you are inside the United States, i.e. if your feet are on American soil, you may ask for asylum. And then a whole kind of legal regime kicks in. And so that's essentially what happens. They cross the border without permission, not legally. But when they're in, they ask for asylum. And so it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a paradox, but that, you know, that's, that's the majority of cases. So let's maybe take a moment to talk about how broken the system is, particularly with respect to timing. So you come across, you are found, you say, I want asylum, which is your right to do, even though you've you have maybe technically broken the law by coming into the United States. The goal is what for most of those people? To have a speedy, perfectly efficient asylum hearing with a decision on that in an impossible um, hypothetical universe of a month? Or, as some people argue and criticize, it's to understand that you can't be adjudicated quickly and years will go by while you basically have lawful legal status in the United States to disappear into the shadows, or to ultimately, perhaps, if you're lucky, get that proper status. Is that a fair way of thinking about it? Yeah, I mean that—that's exactly what's happening. I mean that—that that is this is the heart of the matter right here. So, so you cross, you, you wait across as, the as a practical matter. Once you once you get in and wait for an adjudication of asylum, you're basically in. You're in because we don't have the staff or the systems in place to do these things quickly. That's right. I mean, a typical wait time. So you get you get arrested at the border, 
Yeah. Um, you ask for asylum, and then there's this kind of illegal, the legal standard is credible fear. Do you have a credible fear of being persecuted or killed if you go back home? It's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty hazy standard. The interview doesn't last that long. The Border Patrol guy says, okay, you've got a credible fear. You know, so after a couple of hours, you're released into the United States. Um, at some later date, you're going to, you're, well, you're supposed to a, report to a, an immigration office. But, but you, the wait you times just give, are you years. Just give your, you years. just give your WhatsApp um, address. <laughs> that, I, it's remarkable. I mean, but it, it really does come down to that. I mean, most people that come over, most people that cross over, like if you're in a town like Del Rio, Texas, on the border, it's a town of about 35,000 people. I mean, they've just been thousands and thousands of people have come into Del Rio, but they don't stay. And most of them don't stay for more than a few hours. They come in. They make a phone call, usually to a family member, you know, in Miami and Connecticut, Minnesota, California, and then they get on a bus and or they get on a plane and they're and they're gone. And so, like I, I talked to this woman, Karen Gleason, who's a reporter in in Del Rio, Texas, and she said, if it, if it wasn't my job to know that all these people had come through here, I wouldn't know. Because she said, you know, we've had thousands and thousands of people come through the town of Del Rio, but you don't really see them because they're always moving somewhere else. Sometimes on the courtesy of a governor like uh, Governor Abbott, right? Yes, yes. I mean, that's we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that in a moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you do you have a sense at all of at the end of the day how many asylum seekers have reasonably legitimate asylum claims, or do experts know? Well, you have to wade through the statistics, but basically, you know, you have to wait several years before you finally get your hearing. You know, oftentimes that's six, seven, eight years uh, before you get to stand in front of an immigration judge and make your case. A lot of people never show up for those hearings. Um, but if they do, typically about half are rejected, more than half are rejected, basically. And so, but that's like, you know, eight years later when you're, when you're in the courtroom and a lot of people haven't showed up. And so a lot of things have changed. And so it's, it's a tricky number, but I think it's, I think what the, the critics of the current policy would say is that, and, and I don't think this is necessarily unfair, um, I think that they'd say the system's being gamed um, because people, look, people, most of the people who come to the border are desperate um, and they, they want a better life for themselves and for their, for their families. And that's what they want. You know, they want the American dream. And... And, and that's the bulk of the people that I think it's fair to say we're, we're dealing with. They know that their best chance is to plead asylum. And so I think that's what's happening. So, so you mentioned this policy that some people have a passing acquaintance with, which arguably the removal of which has caused this crisis to expand. And that was the Trump policy of remain in Mexico. Could you just explain that again and give us your best understanding of how a change in that policy has affected the problem at the border? Yeah, the, the Remain in Mexico policy was designed to kind of deal with the problems that we're, that we're talking about now, which is, which is you, you cross the Rio Grande, you are on American soil, you ask for asylum, you're released into the United States. Maybe we see you again in six or seven years. What the Trump administration wanted to do and what they tried to do was to, was to say, you want to come into the United States and make, make your case for asylum? Okay. Um, but you're not going to you're not going to be allowed to wait in the United States for the time being. You're not going to be allowed to wait six or seven years. You're going to have to wait in Mexico, 
And so that, of course, created all, all sorts of other problems. But basically, people were being turned away who were asking for asylum. So people who were, who were saying to the Border Patrol, if I go home, I will be tortured or killed. And we were turning them around and saying, you got you to gotta wait in Mexico. Sorry. You know, we'll, we'll call you when, you're, when your turn comes up. And how did the Mexican government feel about that? Well, that, exactly. I mean, these problems are so complicated. So often when— I mean, they already had to pay for the wall. <laughs> yes. So that seems yes. like a double burden for them. Yes. And, and so Mexico, often when Border Patrol turns people around, the Mexican government doesn't want to take them. So, for instance, they don't, they don't want to take somebody from Venezuela or they don't, they don't want to take the people. And so it's very, very difficult. And so, for instance, if you take, if you take a person, hundreds of thousands of people from Venezuela have come to the border. If you try to turn someone around or, you know, send them back, how do you do that? Um, we don't really, we don't have any kind of like working diplomatic relations with the Venezuelan government. So we can't put them on a plane and send them back. If we try to give them to the Mexican government, often they'll say no. And so we're, we're stuck. And so that's a, that's a lot of the cases as well, which is, okay, we've got a group of Venezuelans. I mean, I watched a thousand Venezuelans come over like in the space of an hour in El Paso. What do you do with them? Um, and, and it's really, really hard. You can't, you can't just put them on a plane and send them back because like there's, you know, when we call the Venezuelan government, nobody answers the phone. What do you do? And so that's just one example of how difficult this stuff is. I mean, a cynical person might frame the issue as, what do you do with them? Is it better and more humane for them to remain in Mexico or to remain in Martha's Vineyard? <laughs> where, well, where, where some of them have been transported, right? It's, I mean, it's a weird way of putting the question, but isn't that a little bit how it shakes out? Well, I think, you know, that was, that was, that was Ron DeSantis trying to make a political point. But I, but I think, I, th I think what, a lot of the concerns or a lot of criticism of, of the Remain in Mexico policy was that the people we were sending back into Mexico were being brutalized, robbed, murdered, raped, killed. And, uh, and, and that was, you know, that was, that was on us. The stories that these people have when they arrive at the border are often just astonishing. Um, people walk thousands of miles. They spend all of their money. They are robbed repeatedly. Often they are raped. Um, and this is all before they get to the United States. And so the, the, these are epic, uh, human struggles that people, and so these are the people who you see at the border are often just, they're extraordinary. I mean, they've, they've, they've walked hundreds of miles, uh, on almost no money, um, confronting the worst hardships along the way. And they're coming cause they want to, you know, they're, they're coming not because they want a free ride here, but because, because they want to work. You know, and that, and that's, and that, that's what's so heartbreaking about it is that most of the people who are coming are good people and they just want to, they just want to make better lives for themselves. I'll be right back with Dexter Filkins after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 
Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Based on your sourcing, and I think earlier you mentioned that there were either, I can't remember if you said current or former Biden administration officials who basically suggested the administration was naive in undoing certain policies and not foreseeing how much of, a, of an increase there would be at the border. Do you think the policymakers, up to and including the president, if they had to do it over again, would do it differently? I think they would. I think they would. I, I think President Biden would. I mean, I think, you yeah, know. How, how so? What, how, how do you think that would play out if he could have a do-over? Well, I, I think that during the campaign in 2020, when President Biden was, you know, when all these things were being discussed, President Biden said, what, what President Trump has done at the border is inhumane and it's un-American. And he's turning people back and terrible things are happening to them. Well, he was separating what, children from their families. Yeah, we're separating children, putting children in cages. And, th and that's not... That's not who we are, and you know we're 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 banning people because they're Muslim. That that's not. Well, those are all correct statements, right? Yeah, yeah. and and th those are some of the things that Trump, in fact, was doing. And so Biden said, essentially, we're not doing any of that. And if I get elected, we're gonna we're gonna throw all that stuff in the trash, and we're gonna we're gonna go back to being the United States of America and the shining city on the hill. And and so I think when everybody heard that. They took it, and and you know, people told me this on the border. Um, when they heard that, they thought, "Wow, that means that means the border's open. Let's go." And so you can look at the numbers. When, however inhumane President Trump was being, how you know whether you disagree with that or not, the numbers were much lower than they were uh, than when Biden came in. So when when the Biden administration comes in, you just see the numbers begin to surge, and they they had been climbing uh, in the last months of the Trump administration, but they really really started to surge when President Biden took over. And basically, they haven't come back down. They've been high ever since. And so I, th I think, you know, a, lo a lot of the things that, that President Biden has been trying to do recently have been pretty close to some of the things that, that Trump is doing. Like, so, for instance, um, tr the Trump administration had something called a transit ban, um, which means basically, look, if you cross through 10 countries on your way to the United States— you have to show us that you tried to get asylum in one of those countries, and they turned you away. And if you can't do that, we're not letting you in. Trump did that, got a lot of criticism for it. The administration got sued. President, the, the Biden administration is trying to do the same thing. Because I think what, what's happened in the Biden administration is this, you're basically just grappling with, it's really about the numbers. And so you're, you're just, it's like, we want to be humane. But the numbers are staggering. You know, the numbers are just massive. And so so we have to try to find a way to get this under control. And I think that's what they're dealing with right now. And in part, because they're hearing criticism not just from Republicans, but from Democrats. And you you quote someone in your article framed as, as follows. You have a source who's a former senior administration official who said, told you that the changes were also prompted by public criticism from Democratic governors and mayors. And this person said, quote, 
When it was just Republicans complaining, they could ignore them. They could say they were just being partisan or racist. When the Democrats started complaining, they had to listen. End quote. Can you elaborate on that dynamic and how it's playing out politically? Yeah, I think that's exactly what's happened, basically. The, the, essentially, I, I think it's, it's fair to say two years ago, uh, right after Biden came in, the border was seen as like, okay, well, that's like something that Fox News cares about and like they're banging the drum over there and they show these, they, they show videos of people walking across the Rio Grande, but it's not something we have to worry about. It's always been that way. It's okay. Um, but what's happened, and you know, I, I'm, I'm in New York City, you, you, you see it all over the place. What's happened is that the numbers have been so enormous that places like New York City, places with Democratic governors, New York City, Chicago, Denver, have been overwhelmed by the number of migrants who have come into this city. So in New York City, for instance, I think it's 160,000 have come in uh, into the city um, since, uh, since, since 2021. And New York is kind of unique in the United States and it has a right to housing law. And so that means essentially the city is obliged to provide housing for 160,000 people. And so um, there are hotels all over the city uh, where these people are staying. And so I interviewed a family that had come across. They were from they were from Venezuela, and there were three of them. And they were staying in a hotel in Midtown that, that before beforehand had gone for $289 a night. There were thousands of those people. And so New York has spent, New York City has spent well over a billion dollars. It's probably close to $2 billion now. And as they say, we're very proud of what we've done and the way that we've been able to welcome people um, and we're, you know, we're a city of immigrants, but we're, we're out of money. And so what's happened is, is that you've had this revolt of Democrats all across the country where in cities where migrants have poured into. So you have the mayor of Chicago, Washington, D.C., Denver. They're all saying, look, we can't we can't do this anymore. And, and they're blaming they're blaming a Democratic president. Right. But are they saying and I, I'm not sure I, I know which is the answer to this. Are they saying shut down the border, or are they saying give us money to meet our obligations? I, I think both. They're, they're saying both. I mean, I mean, Mayor Adams is, you know, he's gone down I'm going to ask you one question where the answer is not going to be both. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. You At know, some it's point just, in this interview, Dexter. Uh, well, well, I, I, I can answer that. Um, but I mean, I can, I can give you, you, you a you very- were the guy, You were the guy in high school in the multiple choice exam. I, I think it's all of the above. <laughs> all the above, all the above. <laughs> no, but they- All of the, the above guy. I, I think- to answer your question more directly, I think I think Mayor Adams has basically said we're out of room. We don't we don't have any more room. Don't come to New York City, which is remarkable. I mean that right. you know but, the, but this not, is New York but, City. I guess it's an important distinction because because I want to ask you, you know, even though neither you nor I are moral philosophers, but there's a moral aspect to this that I'm having a hard time coming to grips with as an immigrant myself. I'm not the children of immigrants. I immigrated myself when I was when I was a child. It seems to me important to understand what the basis of the complaining is on the part of someone like Eric Adams. Is he still devoted to the right to shelter law and the humanity that that expresses uh, and reflects? Or is he having a change of heart? Because he wouldn't have talked this way before if the numbers weren't what the numbers were, right? Like If you believe in, in people having the right to shelter, that should be true if there's five new people or the, there's 10,000 new people, I would think. Is he having a change of heart? Or is he just saying, you know, Eric Adams, as opposed to other people, because New York City has a particular, fairly, you know, uh, almost unique law, is he just saying, I want to meet my obligations and I want to be humane, but I need some help 
from my federal government. I think that Mayor Adams, as well as the other big, uh, the, the, the mayors of the big democratic cities, I think they're confronting kind of practical realities. And so they, they want to be humane, but then suddenly there's no money left and there are no beds. Well, and the so, Republicans would say, right, I was playing devil's advocate, I have no views. They would say, well, what's happening with them is they're getting finally an education in reality and pragmatism, and it serves them right. That's what, that's what the Republican governors, who I don't have much love for, will say. Do they have a point? They do have a point. They, they have a point because, look, at the end of the day, if you want to be charitable, you can only be as charitable as your means allow you to be. And so that's what Mayor Adams and the other mayors are confronting, which is like, how much do we spend? So New York has already spent well over a billion dollars. It's going to have to spend, you know, the, the projections are, are up to four billion that they're going to have to spend taking care of immigrants. There has to be a limit. We don't have unlimited amounts of resources. And I think that's what they're up against right now. And so, you know, the, the Republicans may be writing saying, well, we told you all along, you can't, you know, you're a bunch of bleeding hearts and you've never thought about this stuff. All, all true, but nonetheless, this is, this is what we're dealing with, which is we are at the limits of charity. And, that, and I think that's what these Democratic governors are expressing. And they're expressing it to a Democratic president. And they're basically saying, you know, among other things, they're essentially communicating, I'm not going to get reelected in my city if policies in Washington are making it, you know, are making a disaster here. And so, so this is also about politics. But Yeah, um, no, I want to talk more about the politics in a second. Or I guess we'll get right into it. Does this problem and the ratcheting up of the problem and the fact that Republicans are making it number one on their list and the fact that you have written, quoting somebody about how Democratic politicians and leaders are not happy either. Does this make it more difficult to get some kind of even moderate immigration legislative package passed? Um, does it make it easier to do that or less easy to do that? I think it's really hard right now because we're in an election year. But but there's, you know, there's always reasons for this. But And, and when you look at on paper, a deal ought to be pretty easy. What, what, do the, what do the Republicans want? They want more border security. What do the Democrats want? They want more legal pathways for yeah, for, for the people who are already here. Yeah. And, and, and yet, and an important statistic, is, and you point this out and others have pointed this out, the last time we had any comprehensive immigration legislation was 1986. 1986, yeah, 1,000 years ago. A thousand and, and years the, ago. Or, or 37. <laughs> it's a thousand years metric. <laughs> it's, um, it's 37. And I, you know, I talked to, I talked to the, to the Republican Senator who uh, helped shepherd that through, uh, Alan Simpson from Wyoming. You did. Who's, I didn't realize, and I, I hate to admit this, I did not realize he was still with us, 91 years old. And razor sharp. And, and he said, look, it was Ted Kennedy and I he said, you know, Ted and I didn't agree on anything, but but he said back then, he said, you know, if, if Ted told me he was going to do something, then I knew he was going to do it. And he said, that's the problem today. He said, trust is the coin of the realm in, in Congress, and there's no yeah. more trust anymore. But, you know, there was an inflection point. And I've, people who've listened to the show religiously, and there are at least two or three of you, <laughs> members of my family, <laughs> mostly. I've made this point before. You know, I worked in the Senate between 2005 and 2009, and there was a movement for comprehensive immigration reform, a follow-on to 1986. In I think 06, 07, and you had the you know the legislative giant you just mentioned, Ted Kennedy was still in the Senate, and another legislative giant, both now gone from us uh, based on illness, was John McCain, and you had an open-minded on this issue at least, and welcoming of legislative uh, immigration reform 
in the form of a Republican president, George W. Bush. So you had what you would think were all the makings of success, especially when you consider the admonition from Alan Simpson, who you just quoted from. In your research and in excavating all this, do you have a theory as to why that failed back then? And, and do you agree with a somewhat cynical view that if it couldn't happen then, how on earth could it happen now? Well, I, I definitely agree with the, with the latter there. I, I think that what a number of people told me, and I think this is true, is that is just, this is really one realm. You know, it's easy to blame President Trump for everything, which I try not to do. But this is one realm in which he changed the conversation about immigration. And so that, so that you can talk to, say, somebody like Senator Simpson, a Republican from Wyoming, who would say, yeah, we weren't anti-immigration. You know, we wanted, we, wanted, we wanted legal immigration and controlled immigration. But we didn't demonize foreigners and we didn't hate them. Um, and, and that's what Trump has changed. So if you remember in the 2016 campaign, they're rapists, they're murderers, you know, they're, they're coming from shithole countries. Um, and those kinds of things is poisoned. It's poisoned the debate. And so, uh, I think I think I quote uh, Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado in my piece, uh, who's a super smart moderate uh, Democrat. And he says, when you when you sit across the table now from the Republicans, there is no appetite for a discussion about legal avenues or any kind, any kind of increase in legal immigration. Is that because they, it's they an effective down. political cudgel? I, yes, yes. But I but I do think also. They're listening to their base, and I think the base feels like we've got enough. Uh, there's too much, and we have to we have to get control of the borders. And I and I think I think what President Biden is running up against is I I think it's a visceral thing as well, and I think it's it's well beyond the Republican Party now. It's it's in the Democratic Party among among voters, which is the border is out of control. We're a nation of laws. Um, and it's chaos, and people don't like chaos. And I and I think that that's what people find disturbing. And I think that's not just Republicans who feel that way. And so I th I think we're dealing with that too. Yeah. Look, it's it's I have heard erstwhile liberals who would have said the most open-minded and welcoming things about immigrants and immigration, for the most part lawful, who now say you know they're they're public school kids whose teachers have to buy with their own money, underpaid public school teachers have to buy with their own money supplies for the class. And yet here we are, as Eric Adams keeps bemoaning as well, you know, fairly liberal uh, democratic mayor, we have to use money that could be spent on other things on this. And I guess my question is, going back to the morality of this, if you're a good faith citizen in this country, how are you supposed to think about this dilemma? Who, who are you supposed to blame are you supposed to simultaneously want anyone who has the wherewithal to come here to come here, have a decent process? Are you a bad person if on this issue you want the borders closed? Help help us out with your moral philosophy hat. <laughs> um, because I do sense a feeling of angst on the part of people who have had a view about this. And I think a liberal and open-minded and tolerant view find themselves getting very angry and don't fully understand if that's if that's right and and how to think about that change of feeling. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had a couple conversations with Democratic pollsters, and they said to me the following, and it made a lot of sense to me, which is which is people support legal immigration. 
but they don't support illegal immigration. So we want to have, you know, open arms and we want, we want the world to come here. Yeah. We, we especially like it when you have a master's degree in computer <laughs> science, but, 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 uh, which is a lot easier to get in the United States if you do, but we want the world to come, you know, pe- people support that. And like, you'll find support for that across both parties. But what people, what makes people really uneasy is when you have cheating, because that's what it is. Basically, it's cheating. And there's a, there's a, I remember President Obama spoke directly to this when he was president, President Obama, who, who bragged about how many people he deported. He said, look, the, the, we support legal immigration. Americans support legal immigration, but what we're against is illegal immigration. And we're against, we're against people who break the rules. But it's a category of asylum. That's why it's maybe a little bit more, maybe I'm naive. It's more morally difficult. The category of asylum seekers, and let's assume that some large number of the people coming to the border have legitimate asylum claims, and people may disagree with that and think, you know, the percentage is not as high as some people think it is. Doesn't that fall into sort of a twilight zone in between legal and illegal? Yeah, if I, yes, if you could sort all those things out. The, the problem is like the system's completely overwhelmed and it's and it's broken. So all we all we have. What well, goes are, back to your earlier point, which really struck me, and that is your charity can extend only so far as you can afford. That's right, and I think we're con- we're all confronting that now. You know, and I and I, we could always let more people in, and I think you know there are constituencies for doing that, and I think I think one of the things which I didn't mention because I was really struck by the following, and I I mentioned this in the in the long piece that I that I wrote. But I remember when I sat down with some of the people in the Biden administration, former and current, and I said something like, you know, what are are you trying to do at the border? You know, and I I thought what I'd hear was, well, we're trying to, you know, get the border under control and we, you know, kind of hold the people back. And they, that's not the answer they gave me. The answer they gave me was, we're trying to manage the flow of people. Um, We're trying to get the flow under control. And I was really struck by that. And the the reason why I think they're they're motivated by by some humanitarian concern, but also I think they they look at the southern border and they say there are millions of people who are coming and we will not be able to hold them back. And we can't fairly ask other countries to hold them back and to take their refugees. How, how do we ask Colombia to take 4 million Venezuelan refugees if we won't take any ourselves? And that the region to the south of us is basically disintegrating because of the burdens of illegal immigration. And so that we have to do our part. It's the right thing to do, but also the practical thing to do. So our, so our goal in the Biden administration, and this was, I think, early in the Biden administration, was we have, we have to try to manage the flow of people who are coming in. And I was just very—I was just struck by that. Yeah, no, that that is striking. So I'm going to allow you, um, Dexter, to take off your morality <laughs> hat. And, Thank and you. Now, and now put on—I don't know if this is easier or tougher—put on your your political hat. And we've already alluded to it, but as as we've all read and, and seen, the Republicans, both on the local and state level, and certainly on the national level, are making this issue of immigration generally and the border specifically their number one issue. Um, and they're getting traction, as you have said, among independents and moderates and even some Democrats. How is this going to play out uh, between, let's assume it's Biden and Trump, or you want to do the alternative universe and we'll know shortly if Nikki Haley's rise has any real depth to it, between Biden and Nikki Haley, who herself is, is the child of Indian immigrants. How is this going to play out in the brutal ground war of the election? I think it plays out terribly for the current administration. 
Um, and I remember uh, when I went, I mean, I think I was in Eagle Pass, which is a, a town in, in Texas on the, on the Rio Grande, gets lots and lots and lots of people coming across because the water's very, very shallow there. And I remember watching several hundred people wade across the river and some of them were climbing over the fence that was there. And, but it was a pretty striking scene. And I thought to myself, if I were a Republican political consultant, I would just film this. Um, and I could make ad after ad after ad after ad um, about how the border is out of control. And it's like the, the scenes are so vivid uh, and they're, they're so, there's no way to spin them. You know, this is what's happening. And they're emotionally very powerful that um, if I were a Republican political consultant, I'd go right there. And I can't imagine that they're not. And so I think we're going to, we're going to start seeing those. We're going to start seeing those ads. They're going to look something like that. And we're going to see a lot of them over the summer. And how do you think the Biden campaign responds if they can? Well, I'm surprised, frankly, that, that the Biden administration hasn't woken up more to the change in public opinion on this. I'm just, I'm just surprised. I mean, are, they, are they just relying on um, the pro-choice movement that's very angry about Roe v. Wade being overturned? Are they, are they resting on that? Or are they just, as you just suggested, they've just been very late to the ballgame on the shifting sentiment about this issue? Or, or alternatively, which is a noble reason, they're being principled and being steadfast because they think America is the city on a shining hill. I think there's a there's a genuine there's a genuine contingent of people in the White House who who believe the latter. Like we're we're doing the right thing here. But but I let me let me point out one thing I learned in the course of reporting the story I worked on, which was somebody somebody inside the White House told me this. And they said, or somebody who had worked inside the White House in immigration told me this. They said, look, the classic uh, classic way that a person gets elected president of the United States. It goes like this. You make, a, you make a bunch of promises to your supporters in your party. So if you're Democrat, you make, you make promises to the lefties, or if you're a re Republican, you make promises to the, to, the hard, to the hard right. And then when you get the nomination, you come back to the center. Um, and, and that didn't happen in this case. Um, that what happened in this case was Biden, who's essentially a, a centrist at heart, needed the left to win and went to the left after he got the nomination. He went to the left and said, like, I need to motivate people to get to the polls and I, and I, I need to get the base out. And that basically he, he was sort of, and I hate to use this word, but he was sort of captured by his base on that. And so, and I think there was some evidence of that in the administration, certainly people that I talked to, these were, he brought people into the administration from the immigration advocacy uh, community. And, and so they, they began to enact, you know, the programs that they wanted. And I think that's, that's kind of where, I mean, Biden has been trying to tack back from that and back to the center, I think, for about the last year. But, but I'm, I've been surprised at how slow they are to react. And, and maybe it's because I was standing on Eagle Pass on the Rio Grande that day, and I, <laughs> and I had that epiphany, which is, which is, my God, somebody's going somebody's gonna to get a lot of mileage out of these shots. Um, and, they, and they really will. But maybe it's, look, sometimes it's the case when I and my colleagues cover legal matters on the podcast and otherwise, and we sometimes sit there and we criticize a lawyer for making arguments that are not particularly good, but sometimes those are the best arguments they got. And so with respect to the Biden predicament, uh, aside from the options that we just discussed, like what what is the thing that he's going to say, given the policies that he's been supporting and given that it's not a great issue for him, 
you know, sometimes it's the case that you don't engage and you you play up your strengths. Some political con- consultants would say, so like you, you're so now put on your political advisor hat, which is a subspecies of the political hat, uh, Dexter. Like wh- what could he say or do that is also not anathema to his conscience, but that mitigates the problem he's having about the border? Well, I, th- I think here's the here's the real squeeze, <laughs> right right here, uh, which is there's a kind of an outline of a deal in Congress now, which which if it were struck, you know, could could help get a lot of the border kind of under control. The Republicans want the following, and I and I think I think this is this is the rub, which is we need to change the standard for asylum. We have to do away with credible fear. There's a credible fear I'll be killed or tortured if I go home. Therefore, I get to stay. They want to do away with it. They want to raise the bar, essentially. And and I think people in the immigration advocacy community, people around Biden, they're resisting that. They think this is this would be a betrayal of what America stands for. Um, you know, we we are the we are the shining city on the hill. Like, come come to America. We're the last best hope. And, and so I, I think they find this kind of personally repellent to kind of be having these kind of conversations. But that's the kind of thing that if you were to do it, could actually make a real difference at the border. And so, and so I think that that's what Biden is up against right now. Like, do you, do you make that deal, even if personally you don't like it, so that you can improve your situation going into November? Do you do that deal? But do you think Republicans, the important ones— in good faith, want a deal, or do they just want the cudgel, as I mentioned before? I th- I think so. I mean, I I think even in an election year. Yeah, I mean, I I spent I spent a few days driving around with a congressman, a Republican congressman from Texas named Tony Gonzalez. Great, great guy. <laughs> uh, what kind of car do you, What kind of car does he have? It well, it was like a it was an SUV, but but he <laughs> he he's his his district is gigantic. It's just like hundreds of miles across southern Texas. So he's like, I'm in my car all the time. I'm always driving around. And he wants to make a deal. Like and he he has been criticized in within the Republican party because he's not extreme enough. I mean, essentially there are, there are some of the Republican proposals coming out of the house want to essentially do away with not maybe not do away with asylum, but really really sharply limit it. And like he's opposed to that. You know, he he's been very clear. He's like I can't go that far. And so I think somebody like, and there's, I think there's, there is a desire among a lot of Republicans to take care of this issue as well, because I, I think it's a problem for the country. It's a problem for them. But, you know, there is, obviously there's an element, the closer we get to November and the Republican uh, media people are making those ads that we talked about that show the oceans of people coming across the Rio Grande, it's just going to be impossible to make a deal because it's going to be too powerful uh, a weapon for them to get elected. What about on the Democratic side in Congress? Who are the people who are seriously contemplating an actual deal? Kirsten Sinema, who I guess is no longer a Democrat, but there's a, a couple people around her who are trying to, they're trying to find a deal in the middle. And it's, it's basically something like a reworking of the asylum rules that the Democrats can live with. And then maybe some some expanded legal pathways, le- more legal immigration, and that's kind of the the very amorphous shape of a deal would be would be that. And it, and it seems obvious, right? It's more border security uh, on one hand that the Republicans want, and more legal pathways for immigrants that the Democrats want. But again, I should point out that 
also what's happening right now is you have some of the some of the really conservative members uh, in in Congress in in the House are saying uh, if we don't shut down the border, if, if there isn't a massive uh, infusion of money for border security, then we're going to shut down the government. And and so that that's I mean you just had a group of Republican congressmen go to the border and they said shut down the border or shut down the government. That's where we're headed right now. And so the, and that's you know that's American politics in 2024. It's it's uh, the compromise is kind of just out outside of your grasp, and then and then it all falls apart. And so that that's sort of what's in play right now. Can we talk about one other tool that people want to deploy in a sort of clear-eyed way, the wall. What, what is the status of the wall? What is the real deal with the efficacy or morality or humanity of a wall? Do you have a view on that? Yeah, I mean, I thought when I was, when I was there, I'll, I'll sort of paint the picture for you. I, I thought, like, if you're, if you're in downtown El Paso, and I saw this, there's a wall in El Paso that goes right along the Rio Grande. And I, I sat in a helicopter one day, like hovering over El Paso, and I watched a thousand, a thousand people come wade across the Rio Grande. But you can't put the wall in the middle of the river. You have to put it on land. And what does that's that mean? That's called a dam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, well, that's a different well, public structure. But that means that a piece of America is always going to be in front of that wall. So in this case, it was like, gosh, 20 feet, maybe. 20 feet of land between the wall and the river. That's all they need. And so the, the thousand people that came across, they waded across the river and they sat down and they waited to be arrested and they were, and they were taken away. How many of those people are now in the United States? I don't know. It's, it was, I tried to find out. I couldn't, but, but probably a good number of them, you know, Pro- probably at least half are probably in the United States now. And, and that's the problem with a wall. I mean, I, I think a wall would sort of work, a wall would sort of work in parts of the border where like you're in the middle of nowhere, you know, like where it's just kind of desert and mountains. Then the wall works. But the, the wall doesn't well, really can't work. You, just, you can't just go around that wall? If there's, if there's, if you don't have a full, I guess people argue, if you don't have a full wall, you can get around it. And people on the other side say, you know, you have a 20 foot wall, all you need is a 21 foot ladder and so on and, <laughs> yeah. and so forth. <laughs> yes. Are those, I mean, th- those are nice, you know, bumper sticker slogans on the issue, but, but do they have any value, those arguments? No, they're good. They're good. I mean, I think, look, the people who are coming here, they're motivated. They're really tenacious. These are driven people. Well, and they've like, left their home. <laughs> yeah, they've left their home. They've walked hundreds of, hundreds of miles. I talked to a woman in New York City who had come uh, from Venezuela, and she made it. You know, she walked. I mean, it took her weeks. She was robbed um, several times along the way, ran out of money several times. She, she made it to a ranch, paid a smuggler, made it to a ranch uh, outside of Mexicali. Uh, in the middle of the night, they took a group of them pitch black, but they took them to the border and there was the border wall. It was whatever it was, 20 feet high. They just put a ladder up against it. It was, you know, 22 feet high and they all climbed across and they went down and then they were in the United States and they saw the border patrol office and they went over and turned themselves in. And she's living in New York City right now. And so, yeah, I mean, how are you going to hermetically seal hundreds and hundreds of miles of territory? But I, I think most of the people who are coming in the United States are coming in not because they, you know, jumped over a wall or because they evaded the Border Patrol guys. 
it's because of the asylum rules and essentially because they're seeking asylum that they that they came in. And so most of the people who were here, and I think when my story ran, which was like in June, I had I had calculated that about four million people had had been allowed into the country. And about most of those were were people who were allowed in on asylum, on asylum requests, essentially. And so these are people who are captured by the Border Patrol and then they're allowed in. And so like the wall, the wall has like no relevance to that. It's what what is relevant is the is the asylum laws. You know, there's some other things that are going on that, in my view, look performative, although they're being claimed to be done in the name of this issue of immigration and the border in particular. The move to impeach DHS Secretary Mayorkas, what do you make of that? I mean, look, it's it's an empty gesture. I mean, it, it's it's theater. I mean, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen with a Democratic president and a Democratic-controlled Senate. It's not going to—it can't. Um, and so what will we have? We'll have hearings in the House, and everybody will shout it. Mayorkas, <laughs> and, and they'll condemn him and criticize him. And that'll, you know, that'll make for good TV. But, like, that's all we're going to get from it is, is, like, a lot of good TV. And, like, maybe he'll be, quote-unquote, impeached. But that's not going to go anywhere. And so it's, it's basically about the theater. And so it, it's hard not to be cynical about that because the problems at the border, and it's an epic— disaster on the border, but they're human. I mean, this is, this is, you know, millions of human beings that we're dealing with here. And so the, these problems are as big as and important as they get. And like, it's not really time for theater. You've been very generous with your time. Dexter Filkins, great piece. I hope you keep covering this issue and keep making us smarter about him. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. My conversation with Dexter Filkins continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for insiders, we discuss a complicated moral question related to immigration policy. Most Americans have a story about how they got here, you know, and maybe that goes back six generations or maybe, you know, maybe zero. That's what America's about. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by paying tribute to an iconic performer and one of my favorites who just achieved a very rare feat. On Monday night, Sir Elton John won an Emmy Award for his Elton John Live Farewell from Dodger Stadium. The Disney Plus concert film chronicled the Los Angeles date on John's 330-date final tour, which ended last year. The win means that Elton John has now won an Emmy, a Grammy, actually five Grammys, an Oscar, actually two Oscars, and a Tony for the original score to Broadway's Aida. That's called an EGOT, E-G-O-T, a vaunted combination of awards that only 18 other artists have ever secured. Elton joins a legendary group of EGOT winners who include Audrey Hepburn, Mel Brooks, Whoopi Goldberg, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and most recently, Viola Davis. Elton's accomplishment gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit more about an artist who I greatly admire. I'm sure you all know Elton John's iconic voice, piano playing, and melodies. And I'm sure many of you know about his legendary collaboration with lyricist Bernie Taupin, who usually first wrote the lyrics before John set them to music, often very, very quickly. One of the duo's first collaborations was your song. As a legend goes, 
The tune took shape over one morning in 1969 at John's mother's apartment in North London. Taupin, then only 18, wrote the lyrics over breakfast. John took them to the piano, and the song almost instantly took shape. As John said in 2013, I just sat down at the piano and looked at it going, oh my God, this is such a great lyric, I can't fuck this one up. It came out in about 20 minutes, and when I was done, I called him in, and we both knew. There's also a remarkable video floating around YouTube showing John explaining his process of writing the music to Tiny Dancer only days after the song was completed. Here he is explaining how he did it. That sort of changes, you see, to this verse. Oh, I feel so real. Different tempo. I am here with no one near. Only you. And you can hear me. When I say softly. My own all-time favorite Elton John song is Empty Garden, the lead single from his 1982 album, Jump Up. The song is a tribute to John Lennon, who, as you know, was assassinated in New York a year before John recorded the track. Elton John and John Lennon were close friends and collaborators. John sang on Lennon's Whatever Gets You Through the Night in 1974. Lennon, who had been on a long break from performing, agreed to a wager with John that he'd take the stage if the track reached number one on the Billboard charts. To John Lennon's shock, it did, and the duo performed at Madison Square Garden in December 1974. That show turned out to be Lennon's final live performance. The Garden, as rendered by Taupin and John in the track, is both a metaphor for the artistic fertility of Lennon's career and the actual Madison Square Garden. And John's haunting, devastating tune, one of the many elegies he set to music over his career, was a perfect tribute to the fallen legend. Here's a snippet. What happened here As the New York sunset disappeared I found an empty garden Among the flagstones there Who lived here He must have been a gardener that cared a lot Weeded out the tears and grew a good crop. Now it all looks strange. I do have other favorite Elton John tracks. They tend to be his ballads. I'm a huge fan of Levon, a 1971 character study about a man who sells cartoon balloons in town with an absolutely towering chorus. And his sound bad Levon. And his sound bad good man. I also love his 1972 Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's a song about trying to make it in New York. John performed the song at the concert for New York City just after September 11th, 2001. Now I know Spanish Harlem are not just pretty words to say I'm also partial to the 1976 Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word, a wrenching breakup song. Unlike most Toppin' John collaborations, the melody came first with this one, and when you hear it, you'll understand how John's music inspired Toppin's devastating words. What do I say when it's all over? And of course, who doesn't love Candle in the Wind? I'd love to hear what some of your favorites are. And if you're not too familiar with Elton John, check out these tracks and the hundreds of other songs from his staggering 55-year output. You won't regret it.
And congrats, Sir Elton John, on the EGOT. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Dexter Filkins. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producers are David Kurlander and Noah Azulay. The technical director is David Tatashore. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, Jake Kaplan, and Claudia Hernandez. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.